Hello, humans. Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. Oh, it's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. How are you on this lovely first Saturday in March? Oh, my goodness. If you can hear my voice like live on the radio, you know everything has been melting. You know it. And it is this wonderment here in Minnesota when we suddenly get to like 40 degrees and go, whoa, 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 spring is here, even though I'm sure that we've got more snow coming. But nonetheless, and I um, plan to get on my bike today and tomorrow. I'm hearing 60 degrees tomorrow for sure. 50s today. I can button up. I'm going to be on the bike for the very first time. So, oh, oh, oh. Okay, anyway, don't get me started at, at, about that stuff. We have a great show today. Um, I'm going to talk about how one, one way in which government helped people and another way in which it has failed them, continuing to fail them. And then um, in honor of uh, Women's History Month, okay, the big interview is an encore of an interview that I did back in November about um, a woman who wrote who investigated and then wrote this piece, including it was her thesis for Columbia uh, Journalism School, about discovering the identities of five black women who had founded a black church in Mount Vernon, New York. I mean, it seems to me that in light of Black History Month, excuse me, in light of Women's uh, History Month, that is really great to identify women who history had given up. And who had hidden, erased, actually is the phrase. So anyway, you'll like that. It's a woman named Rachel Pilgrim, and she did a really great interview back in November. So it's going to be a repeat. If you heard it before, hear it again, because it was really good. Then in my C block, I'm going to talk um, about some frustration I have about not being better connected in the world, about not having a bigger platform, because uh, particularly of something going on in Minnetonka at the moment, Minnetonka, Minnesota. But to start... I have the story of Stockton, California, and its experiment of giving 125 randomly selected citizens $500 a month for, I believe it was a two-year period. Most of this is from a March 3 story by Annie Lowry um, that appeared in the Atlantic magazine. Um, That story is titled, um, Stockton's Basic Income Experiment Pays Off. To begin... Stockton, California is a city with many challenges. Um, In the early 20-teens, the city went into bankruptcy because of a shrinking tax base and its underfunded uh, pension obligations for city employees. In 2014, Time Magazine called Stockton America's most miserable city. And yes, um, the city has challenges around a lot of things, the median income in the city is just $46,000 per person. Thus, I took notice when I heard about Stockton giving 125 people $500 a month for two years without, without any strings attached. Now, I, if you are a regular listener to this show, you know that I talked about this about a year ago, maybe a little bit more than a year ago. So we're coming back and revisiting it. Um, uh, the, the deal was... 125 people got $500 a month for two years, and they could spend the money however they wanted. No strings attached, no requirements, no reporting, no nothing. Just go spend the money. 
do what you want to with the money. Of course, um, there were critics who said that recipients would just spend the money on cigarettes and booze and drugs. Well, um, the results are in. Researchers from the University of Tennessee and the University of Pennsylvania compared the 125 stipend recipients with a control group of another 125 Stockton residents who didn't get the $500 stipend. Among the things that they found, the stipend recipients spent the money on essentials like food, gas, and utilities. They did this overwhelmingly. Less than 1% of the recipients spent the money on cigarettes and alcohol. The extra money gave the stipend recipients more stability as they faced income fluctuations and the ability to pay off debt like credit card debt or to buy groceries without having to resort to a food bank. So think of that. You give people $500, then they don't have to go and use um, nonprofit resources freeing up that space for somebody else who isn't getting the $500 who needs the nonprofit resources. The researchers also found that contrary to what some might think, the extra $500 didn't cause people to stop working or not to seek work. Instead, it gave people breathing room and allowed them, some of them, the breathing room to go find another job that would pay them even more money, okay? Um, some of that is because, well, now you have the $500, you're, you're working this really crappy job, but now you don't have to work the overtime um, <clears throat> to do that crappy job. You got the $500 that's coming in, and now you can use the extra time that you have to go look for a better job, and people did that. In fact, the share of people in the stipend group with a full-time job actually rose by 12%. So you give people $500 a month, and guess what? You get more people who go out and get work, go out and get employed. I mean, I know that sounds contrary while you listen to, to uh, Mitch McConnell and the way that he's trying to deal with the COVID package that's in the Senate right at the moment. Oh, my God, we don't want to give people money. They're not going to work. I mean, of course, this is a man who's a multimillionaire and making, what, $200,000 a year as the speaker, uh, as the uh, 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 former leader of the Senate. Most importantly for me, on talking, go back to Stockton, someone who's I, me, I am someone always focused on how each of us is working to survive the human condition. Most importantly for me, the researchers found that the stipend recipients were healthier, happier, less anxious, and more secure compared to the control group. As Michael Tubbs, the former mayor of Stockton, said, I'm going to give a quote here from you, so many of the illnesses we see in our community are a result of toxic stress and elevated cortisol levels and anxiety. Cortisol, remember, that's back on your, at the top of your spine. Directly attributed to income volatility and not having enough to cover your basic necessities. That's true in the public health crisis we're in now, unquote. So in other words... You take away some of that stress, okay? And I mean, I'm guessing a lot of you listening to my voice right now are stressed about money. I mean, I, I have my stressors about that too. Trust me, I am still exceedingly privileged, exceedingly lucky. But no, 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 driving, to the, driving here to the radio station today, I was thinking about, you know, how much you only got this, Ellie. And then there's these other things that you're going to have to spend money for. So... 
we, we stress. I'm very lucky again. I don't have the kind of level of stress where I'm worrying about, can I go out and buy groceries for my household? But think about this. Humans suffering from the human condition, all striving to succeed it, to, to survive the human condition. You give them extra $500, life turns better. The Atlantic article concludes by noting that President Joe's 1.9 trillion virus relief package has a provision to send low- and middle-income parents $300 a month for kids younger than 6 and $280 a month for kids from 6 to 18. Even Mitt Romney is in favor of giving families a direct child allowance. This is a great example of an idealistic government using its imagination to help people. <laughs> I love it. I know that there's a version of this happening in St. Paul. Um, uh, we had uh, somebody come and talk about, at least give us a little teaser about that um, several weeks ago. I'm going to have her back and we'll get uh, the report on what happened with St. Paul's experiment about this in, in some months coming ahead. Okay. Now, that's the story about government doing good for people. Now, Here's a story where the government hasn't helped at all. This comes from a March 4th story in the Minnesota Reformer by J. Patrick Kulikin. He writes about how Minnesota hasn't hesitated to protect re the resorts on uh, Lake uh, Malax when the walleye population was down or how the state extended unemployment benefits to people out of work on the Iron Range when the mine started shutting down. He contrasted that with the object abject, excuse me, Ellie, read your writing, abject refusal of many Minnesota legislators to support businesses on Lake Street in Minneapolis and the Midway in St. Paul that were destroyed or damaged by the civil unrest that we had over the summer. Many of those businesses lost everything and they lacked insurance or adequate insurance. The rationale of these legislators is that their constituents won't have it, won't have put up with it for it to pay for something that happened in the Twin Cities. They, they just won't, okay? Now, the underlying stuff down there is that that unrest was caused by people in the Twin Cities, and why should we pay for it? And if you pay attention to what's going on, you know that a large percentage of the people arrested for that unrest came from the suburbs and greater Minnesota. So just so you know that. Okay, but we have, we have many, mainly Republican legislators. Who, nope, I'm not going to vote to help. We're not going to fund, we're not going to fund um, to help uh, the businesses in Minneapolis and St. Paul. As Kulikin notes, it's about politics. Republicans are playing to their base. I've got a take that's a little bit one step farther, and it's about racism. That's my take. As we all know, many of the businesses... Um, in St. Paul and Minneapolis were owned or frequented by black and brown and Asian people. When, uh, when the Republican legislators supported bailouts for the tar turkey farms that had to destroy their flocks because of, of uh, a, a virus that affected turkeys, or, the town, or a town had a devastating fire, they did that because they knew the chances were that the benefits of that money would go to white-colored people. No one is talking about this, and yet again, this thing about the underlying racism that is keeping uh, legislators, many from greater Minnesota, to be willing to f help fix Minneapolis and St. Paul. No one is talking about the divide that's causing that, and that divide is about racism. Nobody is talking about that. 
And nobody is even talking about the need to communicate about that, okay? That we need to have people, let's address the problem, let's label it this classic Kelly Krug, you know, let's, let's label it, let's address it, let's, be, let's have a direct conversation about it, let's infuse compassion and, and kindness into that conversation, and let's come together and understand that we're all surviving the human condition. There, is, there are so many things that people, white-colored people in greater Minnesota have in common with black and brown and Asian people in the Twin Cities, so many things, but nobody is doing the work to try and bridge that. Um, so um, anyway, uh, Kulikin's uh, essay in the Minnesota Reformer, I highly le- recommend that you go take a look at it. Um, we need to start focusing on this. We do. Because right now, government, our government, okay, is not helping people. And if we are going to change the landscape, we have to do it without regard to whether or not the help is going to somebody who is quote unquote other. Okay. There you go. That's my take um, for my A block. Um, so coming up is going to be a replay of my interview of Rachel Pilgrim with her story about discovering the identities of five uh, black women who founded a church in the late 1800s, 1880s in uh, Mount Vernon, New York. You'll like that story. You'll like that interview. Then we come back. I've got a fresh C block for you. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug. AM 950 LE 2.0 radio. So, Dr. Jill Biden, read up on her. All it takes is a little, you know, Googling on Wikipedia, but you will be tremendously impressed. And oh my goodness. Oh, all right. Okay. So she is one woman, female idealist. And now we're going to move on to the big interview with another woman, female idealist. I have on the line with me, Rachel Pilgrim, who is the author of a study of how of of trying to find the the founders of a black church in Mount Vernon, New York. Rachel, are you there with me? Yes. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. I am absolutely, I'm ecstatic to have you here as my interview guest for the big interview. And let me just kind of give a little bit of the background. So I discovered, found out about you because I'm a, advoc- a reader of the New York Times and their race-related section highlighted a, a study that you did, an investigation you did of five black women who founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York in 1888, but their, but their names had been lost to history. And you are a, uh, you're a journalism uh, student at Columbia working on your master's. Do I have that right? I just graduated in May. You just graduated? Oh, forget it. Okay. You graduated. Congratulations. Okay. All right. Congratulations. All right. So bring us up to date. Tell us, how did you get involved with this? What was your investigation about and what did you find? Cool. So I had moved to Mount Vernon when I was six years old, but my family had always gone to Grace Baptist Church. And I had, when I, I guess, began reading, (laughs) started reading, 
I ended up just reading church bulletins. You know, when you're a kid, you're sitting in church, kind of swinging your feet, twiddling your thumbs while everybody's, you know, churching it up. And I would always read the church history on the back of the programs, the bulletins. And it would always say the church was founded by five women of grace um, with tremendous faith. And they never named them. But as I grew up, I found that Grace Baptist Church was a huge pillar in the Mount Vernon community. And we were a part of so many positive movements in a predominantly African-American community in the middle of Westchester, which is usually white, predominantly white. So I, at a certain point, had started to realize that we needed to name them. We needed to name their vision and really just give them back their legacy. So I got to Columbia and we had to do these pitch sessions, huge pitch sessions for our master's projects. And they were kind of like, pick something that you're passionate about, but would also serve people around you. And automatically I said to myself, I've been asking the same question since I was six. Who are these five women (laughs) who founded my church? So basically it was a tumultuous search. For 122 days, I spent my time going through archives um, from newspapers to census reports to people's handwritten meeting notes and journals. Rachel, and, let, Rachel, let me inter- interrupt here, okay, just for a second, mm-hmm. because I want to help paint a little bit further picture. So Grace Baptist mm-hmm. Church that these five women founded in 1888 um, happens to be what the is it the, it's the largest church in Westchester County. Do I have yes, that right? It's the largest, yes. Okay, it is. so Westchester County, you know, very affluent, but it also has it also has other um, aspects to it in terms on on the economic scale, and so it's right. got three thousand members, largest church, and and for what two decades you're going to this church reading about the five founders who are never named, and you that that stayed with you all of that time. And this was the thing that you focused on for your master's thesis, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, it must have really stuck with you. All right. So you start going through archives to try and figure out who these five women were. Go ahead. So it was really hard. I was up against racism, sexism, literacy, so many just... It could have been oral tradition, really. It could have been a story that people just said, and there was no factual basis to it. About the five women. And, yeah, about the five women. These okay. five women possibly could not have existed at all. So I found myself in a space where I was better understanding my blackness when it came to historical context. And then on top of that, I was trying to examine a very small black community at the time back in the late 1800s that was living in Mount Vernon. So it meant I also had to understand why things changed. And so, um, yeah, it it was really, it was a really intense search. I ended up settling on five candidates who I'm really, really attached to at this point. I'm praying that I am right, (laughs) but their names are Emily Waller, Matilda Brooks, Helen Claiborne, Sahar Bennett, and Elizabeth Benson. Well, and and 
I am thrilled that you you have at least to a reasonable degree of journalistic certainty figured out they are the five women. But can mm-hmm. we go back and can we paint the picture of what it was like in mm-hmm. Mount Vernon, New York, in the late 1800s? First of all, we have a society, and I, I, and I don't think today that we understand this, we had a society that was still dealing with the vestiges of slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And how, how did, so, what did you find out about that? So um, when I spent time with the genealogist at my church screen, she and I had to better understand just the time period, about 25, give or take, five years ago in 1865, of course, it was the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. Um, which would, by word, I guess, free slaves. But as history would tell it, many people know this by now, too. Many slaves wouldn't find out they were free until many years later, which is why many Black people celebrate Juneteenth. So, um, unfortunately, I was in a space where I had to understand that many of these people could have been illiterate which is why they did not write down their stories. Right. And so it also would have meant that if they were former slaves, which is a part of the founding story that Grace always told, that these women were possibly formerly enslaved, then the chances of them being illiterate skyrocketed. Right. Then on top of that, moving to a predominantly white city, no matter how progressive it was, there was also going to be a chance that, you know, people didn't write down things for them either. Because at that time, how would you expect anyone to really care what black people were doing, unfortunately? Right. They wouldn't think that it was so, important. Okay, Rachel. Exactly. All right. So, Rachel, I've got to stop you because we've got to take a break. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we come back, I want you to continue to talk about what you found out about that period because. What what you did find was that a white church helped, you know, helped these five women. But then there were some mm-hmm. other things that went with it, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, that's great. Rachel, we've been speaking with Rachel Pilgrim, who is the author of a study about five black women who founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York in 1888, appeared in the New York Times. Uh, when we come back, we'll do more of uh, what Rachel, we'll learn more about what Rachel found. If you like this show, visit my website at elliekrug.com. We will be back in a minute. Thanks. Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Before we took our break, we had we had been speaking with Rachel Pilgrim uh, from New York, who uh, is part of her getting her master's degree at the Columbia School of Journalism, wrote a thesis about investigating and finding uh, five black women who had founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York. And Rachel, before we took our break, we started to introduce the idea or the what one of your findings, which was that it was a it was a couple of women and maybe a man at a white church in Mount Vernon mm-hmm. who sort of took these five women under their wing, for lack of a better phrase, and helped them mm-hmm. get get their black church established. Is that do I have that correct? Yes. Okay. You're totally right. 
All right, but then what did you find out about how that relationship went between the white church and then the newly established black church? So obviously, like there were strings attached, right? They weren't going to help them. They weren't going to help the five women just because they could out of charity, right? There would end up being a lot of um, nuances that came with helping them found it. So the there was a white socialite by the name of Martha Wilson who ended up having a piece of land, and she was connected to First Baptist Church loosely through friends in her neighborhood. She ended up donating this piece of land to Grace Baptist Church in trust. Okay, so she's donating the land to the five women to the black church that's been created in Mm -hmm. trust. Okay, go ahead. Which means it's a gift, right? Yep. So, unfortunately, the white church that was responsible for undertaking this mission did not let these members know. And they ended up charging them rent on this piece of land so that they can hold their church services. So the black, obviously the white church is illegal. Okay. The white church is charging the black church rent on land that actually the black church really owned. Right. Yeah. It was their land. (laughs) And they ended up charging them rent. Um, Something I don't think I mentioned in my thesis was that there was a lot of instances of, this church locking the doors to this small chapel because they would be behind on rent or they somehow didn't have the right to hold a funeral there or somehow they didn't have the right to have like a choir practice, something like that. All of a sudden, these members, particularly the ones that actually helped them, would go and lock the doors to the small chapel. So they would never really have full ownership to their land until um, their third pastor who comes along says, hey, I found the deed. And it says interest. And from what I understand, this means that this land is ours. You can't keep charging us rent. Of course, that didn't go over well. And there was a lot of physical conflict between the deacons and the pastors and many of the ministries between the two churches. So, and, and in fact, the, the, the pastor of the black church who, who said, I've, un- I've discovered that you, you have been cheating us for all these years, white church. In fact, the black pastor got beaten up. I mean, he was assaulted by members of the white church. Do I have that right? Yes. And he ended up suing them for personal damages, as well as suing them for basically all the rent that they had been paying the church. And he was awarded a small amount of change. I believe the numbers were like for personal damages on his part, on his person, it was 25,000. And on behalf of the church, he sued for another 10. He didn't get more than, I want to say, like 10,000 in total. Right, but this is the early, yeah, but let's make sure that we, um, our listeners understand the point. It's a black man, he's a pastor, in early, the early mm-hmm. 1900s now, early 1900s in New York, he sues white people 
for mm-hmm. physically harming him and for the wrongs that they had done to the church, to the black church. And he, he, win, he doesn't win everything he wants, but he wins some money, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, I mean, I think that's an interesting historical footnote. <laughs> yes, it is. There's a lot of li- just little notes that I would love to make in my thesis, hopefully in a book someday, <laughs> hey. about all the things that I want to put in that just make this church's founding story so much more interesting. Well, and it already is. Well, and so will you talk about the concept of erasure, please? That's a phrase that's prominent in your, in your dissertation and in the New York mm-hmm. Times story. Tell us what is erasure and why is it so important here? So really the concept of erasure, especially as it pertains to black people and black women, is really just the overshadowing of their legacies and their real promise and the things that we are capable of. And it's just overshadowed by not just white people, but just society and moments in history that people would deem even more important. And so we find ourselves often left as the subtext of history, where it's just like we're mentioned as little footnotes when in reality we have accomplished much more than a footnote can allow. Right. Well, and we have some, of course, we have like Harriet Tubman, some, some figures um, in America that, that were able to escape er- erasure and were able to, to show up. And, and, we're right. hear- and we're hearing this in the election that we just had. You know, I mean, Stacey Abrams, right. my God. But, but right. Stacey Abrams' work, you know, was empowered by millions of black women, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and even right. now we're hearing, don't forget who those women are, right? Right. And it was a concept that came up in 2016 as well when people realized that black women had really turned out the vote when it came time to vote for Hillary Clinton. And people had framed it as, a, as this idea of us trying to save American democracy, when in reality, we're trying to save ourselves and you're benefiting from us saving ourselves, <laughs> you know, and that's right. really what erasure is, right? Like you, right. you erase not just what the person did, but the intention behind it, you know, and so black women will find themselves really being the big, biggest drivers of a movement and people end up reaping the benefits of what they've sowed. Well, and I want to, we've got just a few minutes left. I want to just go back Mm -hmm. to the five women, Emily Waller, Mm. Matilda Brooks, Helen Claiborne, Sahar Bennett, and Elizabeth Benson. You concluded that they were between 25 and 40 years old when they founded this church. Mm -hmm. Can we think of the courage that they had and the persistence, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in a... Um, maybe all of them were formerly enslaved people. Um, certainly they had enslaved people in their family. They were in a white society. Mm-hmm. And, and five of them persisted, right? Mm-hmm. And they did this. Uh, it, it's amazing. Absolutely. And I'm so happy we can return their names to their legacy. Well, and they, and they were idealists, right? I mean, they were, they were people right. who wanted to change the world. Right. 
All right, so that brings me then to you, okay? I told you that you'd get this question because everyone on, with the big interview on LE 2.0 does get it. Mm-hmm. So, Rachel, what made you an idealist? What made you decide, <laughs> you know, that this would be the story versus you could have done something else <clears throat> for your thesis? And, and obviously, the whole experience that you've had now, I mean, you've even said this in the show, you know, makes you want to write a book about the church, the founding, and I have a sense that you want to do other things. So what made you so idealistic? I would say I came out the womb this way. Really growing up into your blackness in America, you're born tired and you're born fighting change that you didn't know existed before your first breath. So really many of the most valuable lessons about life were the ones that I was never taught, but the ones that I witnessed just in the nuances of navigating this like patchwork of race, womanhood, and intersectionality. And it was without a word. So I'd say idealism came with the skin color. (laughs) 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 Oh my goodness. You know, um, we're on the, uh, we're on the other side of the election you know, we have our first um, uh, vice president who's female and first vice president who is a woman of color. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm hearing you, and I just want you to know this, okay? You just gave mm-hmm. me an added shot of hope for our country. Mm-hmm. You just did. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yes, I'm very excited for what the next four years would not just, with not just having um, Kamala Harris as VP, but really the amount of women that are about to come out the woodwork that have been doing the work, the groundwork, and getting their flowers and being alive to smell them. Right. Well, Exciting. Right. And you, and you are one of those women. You are. Thank you. So what's next? So you've got your degree from uh, Columbia, uh, master's in journalism. Are you going on and getting your Ph.D.? Mm-hmm. Thought about it, but right now I'm just gonna keep working, keep freelancing, and really I have a few projects that'll be coming out in 2021 that I'm excited about. Okay, and hopefully, you know, a PhD will come my way at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So if people want to read up on the on the the Five Women Project, okay, about the church, mm-hmm. where can they go to read up about it and maybe learn also more about you? Cool. So you can visit the website that was also tagged at the bottom of the New York Times feature, but it's the five women of com, where you can check out the photos, um, any type of resources that I use during my search. You get a chance to even order my thesis through that website as well. Right, which is free, right? <laughs> Everything's free. Yes, yeah. all okay. the information is free. And they can also just Google your name, Rachel Pilgrim. Right? Yeah. Rachel, it's probably felt better with Rachel J. Pilgrim. But yeah, either or. And you can find everything that I've pretty much done at this point. <laughs> All right. Well, Rachel, um, I have so enjoyed having you on LE 2.0 Radio. And I just want to thank you for your time and your willingness to be on the show. But most of all, I want to applaud you. Okay? I want, I want to let you know. 
I am thankful for you. I'm thankful for your hard work and your persistence. And I am thankful that you are part of our future. Thank you, Ali. You're awesome, too. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so very much. All right, listeners, uh, we've been speaking with Rachel Pilgrim, uh, who is the founder and the writer of this wonderful thesis about five black women who founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York in 1888. Go check her out. Check out her website and the story. It is a wonderful story of America and of idealism. Okay, when we come back from our break, um, we'll pick up on my C-block and we'll talk about me, another woman who's an idealist, and things that mm-hmm. I've tumbled to since the election. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. And we're back on LE 2.0 Radio. Okay, Rachel Pilgrim, I, you know, just really a wonderful human doing a wonderful story. I mean, it, it just incredible. Uh, you know, go check out, you know, all you have to do is Google Rachel Pilgrim, New York Times. You'll be able to read the article, all of that stuff. Okay, now this is my C block where I talk about my work, um, sometimes things that are just important to me. Um, and I want to talk about something going on in Minnetonka right now. Um, and, and, and I want to express some frustration about it. I mean, so uh, many of you, some of you are aware that in the Minnetonka school district, for those who are not familiar with the Twin Cities who get this podcast and other parts of the country, you need to know that Minnetonka is one of the most, um, affluent communities in the state of Minnesota. I mean, actually, as you talk about the country, it's, you know, it's up there in terms of affluence. They've got a very good school system. Um, but the predominant number of people living in Minnetonka are white color people. Remember, I refer to white people as white color, C-O-L-O-R, because most white people don't believe that they're white, uh, that their white skin color is a color. Anyway, um, back in February, about because it was Black History Month, um, there's a at the Minnetonka Middle School East, um, there is a language arts teacher, so English, ah, I love that, um, named Colin uh, Peruco who has this, you know, once a, uh, it's, uh, once a week or once a day thing called Peruco's Person of the Day. It's a segment on the, on the school's morning show. You know, schools have their, like their internal intranet where they do programming and all that. And on February 19th, he highlighted um, uh, a woman, a, a transgender woman, um, by the name of Marsha P. Johnson. And I, if you've, and if again, if you're a longtime listener of this show, you know that I highlighted her as an idealist, um, maybe a year and a half ago. But back when Stonewall happened, Marsha P. Johnson, trans, black transgender woman, she was at the forefront of helping Stonewall, 1969, about fighting back against the police. And then she went forward to advocate for transgender rights within the LGBTQ community. She was. She was marginalized within that movement, the LGBT community, um, and eventually Marsha P. Johnson um, was, by most accounts, murdered, um, found, in, found in the harbor in New York City, um, drowned. 
And so anyway, Peruco, Colin Peruco does this story about her. And then, you know, he talks about, you know, how she was a fierce advocate for gay rights, um, that she, you know, paved the way for a louder and more prominent voice of the injustices that were being done in and to the gay community. And by the way, I should give attribution here. This is a story from Bring Me the News by Melissa uh, Turtinen, dated, uh, updated on March 3, 2021. At any rate, he did this, but a parent <clears throat> apparently recorded this m- morning segment, um, you know, remember distance learning and all that. And then that parent got irate about it and then reported the segment to the Daily Wire, which apparently is a very conservative website. And this then went viral, okay, about how apparently the school district, you know, is brainwashing children, you know, um, bringing, you know, horrible stuff into the classroom. I'm paraphrasing here, okay. And now there's a big, you know, there's a big debate because there was a period of time where the school district, a question of whether the school district was going to, to in some way discipline Peruco, maybe even to the point of losing his job. And um, so they waited on that. Okay. Now, thankfully, a statement came out supporting him from the school administration, but Poor Peruco. I mean, he hang, he hung on the edge, on the outside there for almost a week before hearing that. And the Minnetonka Coalition for Equitable Education, it's a grassroots organization that promotes equitable education in the Minnetonka School District, got a hold of it. And and they, they got upset about how the teacher was treated. And, and, and in addition to that... Um, you know, the, you know, they organized a, de- a demonstration, I believe, last night. But the school now has said that it's going to review all kinds of content in the future. So now we're into this self-censoring thing, and it's going to chill. It's going to chill the imaginations and the speech of teachers, not only at the middle school, but at, throughout the Minnetonka School District, as well as other school districts in the Twin Cities, I guarantee you. I'm telling you about this because I don't think this is fully over. Um in the span, literally, of six hours, I had three different people reach out to me about this and say, hey, Ellie, um, you need to get involved with this. And I had a friend um, uh, send my bio to the superintendent for Minnetoka Schools, um, but nothing has happened. No one has reached out to me. And my frustration is I am not connected enough. I, you know, I just go do my stuff. I'm not real good at let's let's all get together and sit and talk and... And, and just process for our years or days or whatever and not get anything done. Anyway, if you know anybody in Minnetonka who wants me to come and speak to the school district or to parents, reach out to me, lejkrug at gmail.com. Please do that. I want to get involved. I want to help. Okay, uh, big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson, who I adore. You know that, Brett. I say that every week, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. And to you, my listeners, I adore you as well. I, I got the numbers on podcasts, what people are clicking into podcasts after the show's over. I'm amazed at the number of people that are doing that. So thank you. Tell others about this show. Share about it. And uh, go out and do something good. Make the world better. Back next week. Bye. <laughs>